Hi, everybody. We have a great show today. I'm really excited to talk to our guest. Her name is Nancy McLean, and she wrote a very important book called Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. You know, the book came out in 2017. I thought it was scary then, but today it's more than scary. Today it feels prescient because it takes us back to the beginning of this theory, this economic theory, that property rights is absolute. Property rights are sacrosanct. And the realization or the belief on the part of many people, including the Koch brothers, that basically absolute property rights are at odds with democracy, and that in order for property rights to be protected and exalted, democracy itself must be kept in chains. Nancy McLean is an award-winning scholar. She's the William H. Chafe Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. Her research focuses on gender, race, labor history, and social movements in the United States in the 20th century, particularly uh, uh, focused on the U.S. South. She's received more than a dozen prizes and awards. She's a seminal thinker. And I think for those of us who are deeply curious, deeply concerned, and realize that the United States has become in very many ways disunited, for those of us who are looking for a deeper understanding, how did we get this way in order to understand what it is that we need to do to repair? I don't think anybody is more important to talk to than Nancy McLean. Welcome. Nancy McLean, thank you so much for being here. It's just an honor to speak with you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. You know, I think many Americans realize that we are in trouble, that the United States has become disunited. I don't think that people are in denial about that, uh, the way I think many people were in denial about the decline, the declining trajectory that got us here. Now that there is, I believe, a critical mass of people who realize we're in trouble. I think that there's a listening for a deeper analysis of how we got this way in order for us to have a sober appraisal of what's going to be necessary in order to repair. I, I can't think of any uh, person or any book uh, that has done more to lay out the path that took us here than yours and your book, Democracy and Chains. So I want to talk to you, you know, the book came out in 2017. When the book came out, I found it scary. It was chilling. Now it's even more chilling because it was so prescient. So I'd like to, I'd like two categories of conversation here. First, what was already in the book? How did all this start? What was the stealth plan? Why was there a strategy to quote unquote, put democracy in chains? Who did it and why? And then after we've sort of laid that out, or you've laid that out, I want to know how you see things now, where we've gotten to since you wrote the book, and once again, your thoughts about how we can repair. Wonderful. It sounds like a perfect agenda. Great. How did all this start? Uh, um, well, <laughs> you can. I'm a historian, so I can keep going back uh, if we wanted to. But interestingly, um, the ideas of the cause that I wrote about have a remarkable similarity to the ideas of the pro-slavery uh, South, South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun in uh, the 1830s, um, who came up with a whole whole analysis of American society that would defend uh, absolute property rights and um, and created many of the categories that are still in play by the libertarian movement today. But I won't take your readers time up with all of that, that long story. Um, but we'll just say that I picked up the thread in the uh, late 1950s in 1956, in uh, Virginia, during the fight over Brown versus Board of Education and the desegregation of public schools. And I happened there uh, in that research on an economist named James McGill Buchanan, who was the first uh, US with winner of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences from the South. And he developed a very unusual school of thought that basically, he was really our most original thinker, um, some could argue, uh, in the late 20th century about democracy. And the fact is, he was really against it. <laughs> and so I picked up that on that story and found that his ideas ended up being um, discovered and subsidized by Charles Koch, um, the uh, 
multi-billionaire from uh, Wichita, Kansas, uh, CEO of Coke Industries, and the huge number of organizations that he and his fellow donors in the Coke uh, Donor Network Fund. Um, and basically what he found in Buchanan's ideas was something that he had been looking for since uh, the 1960s and patronizing various intellectuals to try to get uh, what he called a technology of change. And what he meant for, by that is that he knew the kind of libertarianism he sought, this extreme property rights absolutism, this deep anti-hostility to government, to any kind of regulation or social programs, that it was not going to fly politically <laughs> in a democracy. Um, you could never get people to vote for that kind of a, agenda. So you had to figure out another way of doing it. And basically, he found in the ideas of this uh, political economist, um, a strategy that could be weaponized and turned into a way of, um, you know, as my book puts it, shackling democracy. Uh, and that is what we have seen with accelerating speed. Um, you know, it's been developing for a while. A lot of groundwork was laid in the 1970s, particularly in the 1980s uh, and the 1990s, but it really took off. You know, we all became more aware that something was happening after the election of uh, President Obama in 2008. And since then, this Koch-led uh, uh, cause has managed to capture control of 30 state governments through a Republican party. It's radicalized beyond all recognition uh, to have increasing sway over our courts, uh, as we see with the um, six, um, six to three majority for uh, candidates from an organization that he funded, the Federalist Society, uh, and in the almost catastrophic state of our national politics in Washington, D.C. So I know that's a lot to put out there, but I'm sure that you will also uh, pull out the threads that, um, that will be of interest to listeners. Well, there are some specific phrases that you used which do weave the story. And it begins with the absolutism of property rights. So when you talked about this Southern Senator Calhoun, when when are we talking about? So we're talking about the 1830s as okay, the 1830s. rising abolition movement was challenging the institution of human enslavement and saying it was at right. odds with the Declaration of Independence. Um, that it, was, right. it was a sin and it had to go. And in that context, the more, most determined Southern slaveholders began constructing a defense of slavery, a, a defense that involved right. racialism, it involved biblical stuff, it involved what passed for science then. But but the one who really had a strategy um, to, to protect planters' power was Calhoun, who rethought the U.S. Constitution in ways that are very similar to what today's corporate-funded libertarians are doing. So on one hand, you had humanitarian and moral values mm -hmm and the basic construct of the Declaration of Independence, which is all men are created yeah. equal. That you have on one hand. On the other hand, you have the proponents of absolute property rights, and in their mind, slaves were property. Yes. And so, whereas the moral humanitarian democratic view was saying you were transgressing against the, um, the Declaration of Independence, Calhoun and others, slave owners, uh, specifically, we're arguing, no, the Declaration of Independence, as you interpret it, is transgressing against absolute property rights. Absolutely. So you're saying, okay, so you're saying that this thread was then picked up by a Virginia economist that I think I read or heard you say had been being educated at the University of Chicago? Yes, absolutely. Did I just make yeah. that up? No, yeah, no, okay. And he basically picked that up, mm -hmm. and he argued or posited in a way that was then very attractive to the Koch brothers, that actually free market absolutism and the exaltation of proper property rights is almost like some higher good. That sort of what I see as a kind of shadow side of capitalism, the kind of toxic yes. uh, brand of capitalism is at odds with democracy that it could only survive and maintain itself if democracy is kept in chains, 
That was the economic theory, and the Koch brothers came along and said, well, actually, we could fund the political strategy to bring that into being. Is that what you said? That's exactly right. And I would add another thing, uh, Marianne, uh, it, which is that um, it's not coincidental, I think, that the Koch, uh, uh, Koch Industries is based in the fossil fuel sector. Um, and James Shocker. And early funders also came from Sun Oil and many of the other key you know, sure. oil industries of the right. time. So I think you know, an, a, another thing driving this is that by the 1990s, it was clear that the world was beginning to recognize global warming as it you know, was called then global warming today, climate change, you know, as, as a dire threat. And that was actors across the political spectrum. I think it's important to say, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush made a major speech about this, you know, other actors around the world, other global leaders were starting to act on it, as we saw with the Kyoto Protocols. And I think that scared the hell out of Charles Koch, um, along with others in that sector. And so it's very, you know, it's not the same, of course, this is not about slavery, but but the logic of these absolute property yeah. rights that democracy must not be allowed to impinge upon, even if it's endangering the people of the, and all the species of the world, you know, it is, it is that extreme in ideology and that toxic. So I really think about libertarianism now as a deadly dogma and something that people yeah. need to understand. Yeah. And the survival of the planet itself. Yeah. So, and as you said, you know, uh, Nixon, a Republican president, had established the EPA. Yes. So when Koch said he joined with this Buchanan economics and he said, I can provide the political strategy, the p political technology, as you said, establish the Federalist Society. What did they aim for first, the Republican Party? Oh, interesting point. Well, this this uh, enterprise is, um, uh, in part, there's a whole integrated strategy of multiple dimensions. So they continued to fund scholars and bases at campuses uh, in the United States. Now their Coke money is going to over 300 campuses, <clears throat> the main base is at George Mason University, which I wrote about, but there are other, you know, scattered centers that provide the ideas um, that are used by this project, um, and they provide intellectual cover for it, because when a donor funds your position and you have a name chair at a, a good university, people think, well, they must know what they're talking about. Um, so you have all of that, but they also funded um, think tanks of different kinds, as you mentioned, the Federalist Society. So a whole array of, of organizations um, but uh, so, yes, so the, the Republican Party became an early object of interest with more and more money going in and strategies, again, to, in this case, enchain Republicans. So we saw the phenomenon of primarying. You know, that wasn't even a verb in our vocabulary 20 years ago, but we saw increasing numbers of Republican elected officials that they dubbed rhinos, Republicans in name only, when they were, in fact, the Republicans in name only. They would have used any party. Party they could have, but they so they primaried any Republican who said that he would raise taxes, he or she would raise taxes, and any uh, Republican who would take action on the climate. And so they kept narrowing down the basis of the Republican Party with the donor money and then with uh, feeding the Republican base a steady, you know, stew of disinformation from Fox News and other outlets. Um, so taking that, getting that control of the Republican Party was critical, um, but it was also supplemented by literally hundreds of other organizations that these donors fund. Okay, now I want to slow down a little bit on that, because I think a lot of people are curious what happened to the old political parties that we used mm -hmm. to know. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a democratic family, but there was a sense that there were some things on which we we agreed to agree, no matter what political party we were in. And that's that the government had a role in maintaining a balance between individual liberty and a concern for the common good. So yes, individual liberty would include economic liberty, but not when that transgressed upon the obvious needs of the commons. Yes. Um, even Republicans, or at least we liked to think, recognize that. Now, you talk in your book about people like John Boehner, Orrin Hatch, um, Arlen Specter, who were the early, um, who were the early targets mm -hmm. of this destructive missile, attitudinal political missile that was thrown at any of the old fashioned, what we now see as the old fashioned Republicans, who, yes, they, they, they were certainly what we would see today as corporatists, but they were not insane. And they realized that, you know, there is such a thing as the common good. There is some place for uh, the pu public expenditure as well as privatization. Um, 
do you have anything you want to tell us about how all that went down? Yeah. Um, when it went down? Was the tea party? I mean, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out when did this all happen? Yeah, how did yeah. it happen? I know. So if you give us a- I feel like we've been sort of sleepwalking and suddenly the world. Is- yeah. And I, I think now people get it, but we want to sort of connect the dots. And of course, you that's what you do so beautifully. Yeah, I, I want to, I'm really glad that you, you raised that and reminded us of what the Republican Party used to be like. You know, when I was a kid mm-hmm. in the 1970s, there were liberal Republicans, you know. That's right. Rockefeller and White. Riker, exactly. you know, and they and they went and told, you know, Howard Baker, and they went and told Nixon, you've gone too far. Yes. And I actually, I will confess um, that when I was, I guess I was middle school then, but I um, I actually campaigned for Lowell Liker. I was so, so well, impressed. Well, I never went that far. Yeah, I know. But I was so That would have been my life. But I know. He was like a liberal. What was he, Connecticut? Yeah. Yeah. Lowell Liker. Yeah. And, you know, my there dad liberal voted Republican, you know, most of his life until his death in, in uh, 2000, but he would not recognize this party. It has been no. so very yeah. transformed. And so I'm glad that you mentioned Orrin Hatch because I have that quote from him um, early in the book where he says, after he was primaried, he says, words to the effect of, um, these people aren't Republicans. <laughs> um, they're not conservatives. They're radical libertarians. I detest these but people. You- but you also mentioned in the book that he ultimately folded. Absolutely. And he becomes the one who, having recognized that, then denies President Obama even a hearing for Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court seat. So he's actually a case study of how that donor influence could work with, you know, again, a primary challenge to keep people in line. Now, I have to say for myself, I, I get the mechanisms that they use, but I'm I'm kind of heartbroken uh, and shocked as a citizen that there are so there are almost no Republicans who have spoken out about this process or who are willing to risk their seats, you know, with the exception now of Liz Cheney, Adam Kinsinger is not even going to run again. Um, But, you know, they our journalists need to be asking them, what did you see? (laughs) Who did it? And when did you see it? And how does it work? And tell the country because we need to know this. Well, that's what you've done. But talk to me for a minute about Mitch McConnell. (laughs) <laughs> Mitch McConnell, um, you know, is is about power uh, and about holding power for himself and his party. Um, with the kinds of sources that I have access to, I, you know, I don't, I didn't have access to say Mitch McConnell's papers, right, or, or private record. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is that Charles Koch is an extremely smart manager. You know, he has built Koch Industries from a relatively small uh, company he inherited from his father into one of the largest privately held corporations in the world with operations in six countries and, you know, um, multiple billions in, in revenues. So so he knows how to create incentives, you know, to get people to do what he'd like them to do. And so what he has done and, the, you know, the people informed by this thinking have done that is um, sheer genius, if it's a genius that's very disturbing to those of us who believe in democracy, is to really assess the people that they have to use for this project and what incentives will move them. You know, so for Mitch McConnell and for many Republican leaders, the idea of keeping their party in power forever, you know, a kind of a third party for Republicans, that's good enough for them. And maybe they don't even ask questions about the other things, but these donors gave them a strategy with voter suppression, extreme gerrymandering, um, you know, and all the other things they're doing, gave them a strategy to hold on to power, even when the numbers wouldn't support that, you know, against the numbers uh, in many states. And uh, as we see, you know, with the electoral college versus the popular vote. So that's McConnell. Another piece of this picture is the religious right. And there was a point at which, and I believe it was also uh, in the late 1990s, but it's it's become you know ever more um, uh, expanded now, where this network of donors you know realized that they weren't going to be able to break through by telling the people the truth about the kind of society that they wanted, um, but they had to get them to the polls anyway to make all these other things happen. And so they began to leverage you know what people now call culture war issues, right? Um, uh, the fear of particularly white even evangelicals um, and some Catholics about abortion, about women's freedom, about homosexuality, the anxieties of native-born Americans, about new immigrants in their communities, and good old-fashioned racism. And these operations do all of that, but I think the single most important contribution has come from the entrepreneurs of the religious right who brought them 
whatever it is, 70, something like 70 million or 60 million voters, you know, most of whom believe that the Bible is inherent truth, um, therefore suspect science, you know, from from the opening gate, um, and who have been listening to religious broadcasting for years, to Fox News, um, and have become the most loyal Republican voters, and have proved the most loyal to Donald Trump since then, um, with, uh, I believe it's 70% of Republicans now saying that Joe Biden didn't legitimately win the election. So capturing that share of the electorate was absolutely crucial for this project. Now, you say in the book that Koch was not was not interested in Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not his guy. What what happened there? Where was Trump? Where were they? And how did they come together? Yeah, I think one thing um, uh, is helpful for people to know is that the people who are the strategists here, and you know, I'm particularly referring to Buchanan and Koch, but they don't actually care who's in office. What they want is to get their agenda, right? So it's a personality contest. It's like, you know, get them all to buy into our agenda and then the people can choose whatever face they want because they're going to carry out the same policy. So that's what they did with Marco Rubio, with Jeb Bush, with Chris, you know, the whole, that whole crowd of Republican frontrunners, Donald Trump, because of his money and his media um, uh, uh, platform was able to buck that, right? And we forget today because he said so many horrible things, but he also said, you know, he was going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and bring something better that would cover everyone so well. You know, he said he was going to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. He said he was going to end tax loopholes in business that people like him could exploit. So he said all these things that he had no interest in actually doing, but, you know, they they made it easier for people to go on the on-ramp with him. Now, once, and and, and, um, uh, Charles Koch did at one point um, uh, in the election uh, season say, call him a monster. (laughs) Um, So, so I should say that, but he's a monster that they very quickly tamed. You know, Donald yeah, Trump didn't face in the establishment. As soon as he came into office, it was like surround sound with people from the Coke Network, most obviously Mike Pence, his vice president. Um, and they got so right. much that they wanted from him. Three Supreme Court um, uh, uh, justices uh, appointed, um, the, uh, that horrible tax bill that will hurt middle class people, but was full of little tricks to make people not realize Crumbs to make people think they got and, something and, and many more things as you know so once again not to lose sight of the main storyline all of this was in order to protect extend and maintain a an economic philosophy of property rights absolutism which by definition favors those who have property yes. right yeah. And the recognition that that is inherently at odds with democracy, mm-hmm. because it is inherently at odds with a, a nation of the people, a nation of the people, by the people, for the people, must, by definition, transcend to a nation of a few of the people, by a few of the people, for a few of the people, of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. So the Republicans had before that time, certainly favored corporations, mm-hmm. but not with a denial of the recognition of the, the t- basic tenets of, de- of democracy. Mm-hmm. When this shift occurred, it was a corporatist absolutism, which, um, which at that point recognized that democracy must be kept in chains. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you this. Is it correct to say that the Democratic Party has become what the Republican Party used to be. Oh, that's an interesting. And because of the flood of, so because of the flood of money on the system, mm-hmm. the Democrats now, no matter what they say, mm-hmm. favor corporate interests in more policy positions than not. However, continue to recognize that there is uh, a commons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that democracy does matter. They're trying to play it both ways, which does little more than make them appear disingenuous to people. Would that? Yeah. What it's interesting that you say that because I do remember uh, Bill Clinton, who really, you know, played a pivotal role in transforming the Democratic Party in this, uh, the direction you're describing. He once said that he was really an Eisenhower Republican, um, you know, with yeah. reference. And he was to uh, the president um, in the 1950s, who it called himself a modern Republican, accepted the New Deal as a fait accompli, you know, as you said, recognized the need for a common good for some regulation, even though, you know, was more uh, pro corporate rights and power uh, than the Democrats of the time. Um, I would say I think there's really a fight on for the soul of the Democratic Party. 
at yes, this point. Correct. Like, I certainly agree with you because that. it's not the total. Fa- yeah. So yeah. because it's not the total fate complete yes. in the Democrats with the Republicans, it's a fate complete. They've won. The only people left are Liz Cheney and Adam Kinslinger. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Adam Kinslinger isn't even going to run mm-hmm. again, although I think we'll see. We'll see more of him yeah. with the Democrats. The fight is on. Yeah. And the the war is raging. I, I think about the Democrats, it's important to know is, you know, the, the, they may not be pushing as hard as many of us would like them to uh, to do to defend workers' rights, um, you know, and to enable workers to have collective voice or to, you know, support um, uh, black freedom or, you know, women's reproductive rights. There's all, But at least they're on board for those, right? And there's not a single Democrat uh, I know of who's against, um, who, who supports voter suppression. So now I think gerrymandering is a place where the corporate interests that you talk about come in, you know, because it's the combination of dark money in politics and big money in politics and gerrymandering that really kind of buys off a large section of Democratic leadership, um, you know, as as you're suggesting. Um, so I think, you know, if we want to see uh, things change, we have to support the change makers, <laughs> um, you know, who are fighting for the soul of the party. But we also have to have serious structural democracy reform to limit money in politics and and a national standard that's against gerrymandering because there are plenty of old Democrats who sit in perfectly safe seats with no competition, you know, like Republicans and and citizens don't like it. Actually, herpes polls better than gerrymandering. (laughs) So, um, yeah, well. I, I think that that's where you and I might, uh, you you have a little more charitable view of all that than I do. Because if you do not support getting rid of the filibuster, mm-hmm. you know, you said you don't know one Democrat who supports photo suppression. But if you don't support getting rid of the filibuster, then you are not supporting the only way to actually get rid of the voter suppression at this point. That I so think is an important point, but I think it's also important for us to realize that when um, you know FDR, when first of all, when the radical Republicans, you know, enacted Reconstruction, when uh, FDR, you know, put through the New Deal, when Lyndon Johnson, you know, pe- uh, helped get through the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and um, uh, the War on Poverty, they had huge margins to work with. You know, they could lose 10 or a dozen (laughs) Democrats and still, you know, Republicans in the case of uh, Reconstruction, they could lose a lot of voters in Congress uh, of their votes and still get legislation through. The problem of the Biden administration now, which actually is listening to the left more than the Obama administration did or any previous ones, but the problem is it's so tight. You know, it's 50-50. And so we have Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema from Arizona who have blocked all that. I mean, I could be wrong. I think most Democrats would not, or, you know, they couldn't have gotten, uh, if, the, if Manchin and Sinna ha- had supported anything and you had all Democrats voting together, I don't think that they would have completely eliminated the filibuster, but I think they would have gone back to a talking filibuster, which would may- have made Republicans have to s- stand up there for hundreds of hours before citizens stopping people from, you know, getting voting rights. So, um, it's 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 a really difficult moment. I, you know, I think they also yeah mm, yeah no. I I've, I think that there are, there are two um, significant issues there. Number one, the Democratic leadership, which is basically the Eisenhower Republican brand of the Democratic Party, has been consistently um, supporting the Eisenhower Republican brand of Democrats Mm -hmm. and suppressing the progressive brand of Democrats. And many people believe that the the margins would not be so tight Mm -hmm. if the Democrats had not wandered so far from their core, theoretically what had been their core principles, which is an unequivocal stand uh, for the working people of the United States. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm, I'm with you, you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, okay. And that's number one. And number two. There's a great um, piece of research done by uh, an economic uh, historian that showed that contrary to the myth, which I myself, <laughs> you know, spread in lectures, because that's that's the way the history was taught, but that the, the Democrats lost um, the South after uh, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. That actually wasn't true, particularly for state level politics. It was only after Clinton signed NAFTA and there was a hemorrhaging of manufacturing Thank from you. the South. Thank you. And also, let's remember, let's remember Johnson's words. We just lost the South for a generation. He didn't say we just lost the South for 40 years. Mm-hmm. 
He said, we just lost the South for a generation. Yeah. And the Democratic Party in many ways abandoned the South, including abandoning the rights mm -hmm. of the workers in the South. Mm -hmm. Once you start withdrawing your unequivocal support for the workers, that means for the majority of the people in the South, as well as everywhere else. So yes, I completely um, agree with you. And the, yeah. the National Democratic Party also um, didn't pay attention to the states. You know, they treated people in states like my yeah. North Carolina as like well, ATMs for national races. And now we're bearing the fruits of that because they lost control of so many states. And with the Republicans, these radicalized Republicans in power, they have rigged the rules so that they can preside no matter what happens. So my state, North Carolina, the maps the Republicans drew this cycle, um, we're a 50-50 state, slightly more more uh, Democratic voters. They claim their, their maps would ensure them 10 seats, congressional seats to Democrats for in a 50-50 state. So that's how much um, having control of state governments makes a difference. You know, Nancy, I think it's so interesting. The Republicans, in all the ways that you have mentioned, stand for the most elitist policies, but have, in some really ironic way, a more egalitarian relationship to their own constituency. Mm -hmm. The Democrats historically stand for the opposite. They still uh, w would stand for the more egalitarian policies, but a more elitist relationship to its own constituency, which includes the almost looking at the, the leadership, almost looking their nose, their uh, down their noses at so much of the progressive base, which actually represents the core values traditionally of the Democratic Party. I also think that um, there, we shouldn't forget how much the president could do with executive orders if he chose mm -hmm. to. The president has chosen not to cancel the college loan debt. The president has chosen not to declare a national medical emergency and expand Medicare. The president has chosen not to do, um, to, for instance, declassify marijuana as a Schedule One drug. So we talk about, oh, he has such a thin margin. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there is so much that he could do that could guarantee the kind of excitement that would at least give us a running chance in the midterms. And that he, the... Uh, uh, we, one can only suppose because of his own obeisance to the to the corporatist interests in the Democratic Party has refused to do. Yeah, I think I mean, in some ways, I think um, Biden also just lives in another world, you know, that he cannot. He, he lives in. He another remembers world. when he had Republican friends and That's they would right. do things. So some That's time right. has been wasted trying to over yeah. people that would never be won over. And that's a lesson we should have learned in the Obama years when, and Obama regretted it, spending so much time with Susan Collins, who basically wasted his time and dragged things out. And we don't have time to waste at this point. So I agree. Well, so we need messaging that conveys to people the scale of the emergency. And it is it is interesting. Like I've learned this from um, some very sophisticated pollsters. Sadly, it doesn't do much for the majority of American people to say, we may be losing our democracy because people are so so preoccupied right now with COVID, with how are they going to pay the bills, with what's going to happen to their you know, parents or their kids or whatever. So I think we need to also remind people that democracy is how we get the things they need, right? And so if we, well, you know, we've got to, to repair that bridge so that people understand that, that what's really at stake now is that we are up against a cause that wants to make it so that they can privatize Medicare, I mean, and Social Security, and you won't have anything to say about it. You know, they Right. privatized public education and you won't have anything to say about it. They can end your right to have collective voice in the workplace or reproductive rights or any of these things and rig the system so much that we can't change that. And that's the piece I think people need to understand that it's not democracy in the abstract, as you've well pointed out, you know, our democracy is deeply flawed. Um, so, you you know, so, so we have to protect this thing that's flawed so that we can renew it so that it can meet the challenges of our time. I think it's gone too far. I think it's gone too far. And I think so much of what the president is doing now is too little, too slow, and too late. And this idea that all we need is better messaging. Um, no, that's... I, I No, what we need is action, and action of the kind that I mentioned, whether it has to do with universal health care, whether it has to do with canceling the college loan debt. I just don't see where, I, I, I see it as a kind of neoliberal delusion uh, to think that all we need is better messaging. I agree but, with that. But that, you know, that just has to do with that war raging in the Democratic Party. But let's go back, because I don't want to lose the thread of the stealth campaign um the democracy in chains. So we know what's happened to the Republican Party. The Republican Party has been taken over. Um, we know what has happened in the Democratic Party. You and I have just discussed it. Since Trump's election, you know, someone said to me, Nancy, um, 
we were talking about Trump and we were talking about the belief or at least the hope that so many people had that after Trump's presidency, we would be on some level, quote unquote, going back to normal. But it seems the new normal is so infused with the dangerous threads of this property rights absolutism that it survived the the Trump presidency and has now taken a very, very dangerous turn. Now, I asked you before we came on how this new almost civil war um, psychology that's going on with the alt-right today was created by this Koch brothers strategy. And what you said to me was that the Koch brothers strategy created the context. Mm-hmm. So if you could tell me your thoughts about how did we go from what you talked about in your book to things getting as dangerous as they are, not only to democracy as we know it, not only to the idea of, a, of an appropriately regulated capitalism and and concern for the commons, but, you know, to what could conceivably become blood in the streets and to some extent already has. What happened and how do you see us getting out of this mess? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, we certainly know that Trump <laughs> did a great deal of signaling to uh, white power groups and activists with his messaging on multiple fronts. Um, so there's that dimension. We also know that the Koch network um, has worked very closely with thing, you know, Fox News, <laughs> you know, Fox News um, uh, hosts were regular speakers, have been regular speakers at the Koch Network. And Fox News communication scholars have studied and shown really, it's, you know, it's, it's not a news service. It is an identity cultivating mechanism. Um, and it creates an embattled identity, particularly among white Christian nationalists, um, and, and makes them feel that they are constantly under attack. Um, so you get this fight or flight mechanism where people aren't even thinking clearly about what they need. So that disinformation is a huge piece of this, but also because of what they've done uh, in changing the rules in the states and through gerrymandering and creating these incredibly safe Republican districts, is it's a kind of monopoly politics. The only person who will replace a Republican now is a more radical Republican. You know, so we have a lunatic like Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina. Um, there is what are Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, you could go, Paul Gosar, you could go on the list of these people, but they are all the fruit of this process that began with the Tea Party, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier. And what scares me, though, now about this, and particularly in the wake of January 6th, is that what that made clear is that these corporate donors uh, who are so determined to rig the future so that they can control government are now increasingly likely to realize that the alt-right kind of stormtroops Um, can be relied upon. And they see now that the disinformation is so effective that this core of Republican voters, you know, that 70% who believes the election was stolen from Donald Trump, they could bless a coup, right? And make sure that it succeeds. Um, and, and one thing that we haven't talked about, but I think is, is really important for people to understand is that the coup effort is continuing. And a number of journalists have wrote, written very well about Martin Gelman. But, you know, not only did Republican elected officials support the big lie and even vote not to certify the election, the vast majority of them, after their own offices were invaded and they had to run for safety and be protected, they came out and voted against certification of the election. So we had that. But then out in the states, they are pushing through legislation yeah. You know, in the states they control to make it harder to vote. And more frighteningly, to change the way elections are run um, so that they can control the outcome. And that, I think, also leads us to the point that you made about violence and uh, the potential for something like a civil war. Not like, you know, it's not going to be the 1860s, um, most of the people who specialize in, in modern civil wars will say, but something ugly and bloody and like nothing we've ever seen on a scale that we've seen. And that is because not one of these Republican leaders, uh, as far as I know, has condemned the vigilantism that the party is increasingly relying on, right? So we saw vigilantism mm-hmm. uh, um, after, uh, uh, against COVID health uh, measures. We've seen vigilantism. We're seeing it now, uh, or we saw it after the election, against um, election officials, including Republicans like Brad Raffensperger in, um, in Georgia, who 
honestly, you know, recognize that that by trying to stand up to the illegality, yeah, we're seeing more and more threats to elected officials and to electoral um, uh, staff. And, uh, and now we're seeing these attacks on school boards, which are clearly um, a Republican strategy for 2022. And those are some of these groups like Moms for Liberty are being funded by coat network uh, groups that see them, I think, as a way to uh, win back voters that they lost over Trump by playing to most parents' deepest um, uh, concern and fear, and that's for the well-being of their children. So, you know, this is just unfolding at such a scale. And I talk to teachers, by the way, regularly and school officials who are just, they're in the crosshairs of this, and they cannot believe rightly, the legislation that's being proposed and passed in their states that would criminalize, like saying something obvious, like the U.S. Constitution protected slavery. Yeah, the the new governor of um, Virginia actually has a hotline. If you if your child comes home and says the teacher is teaching critical race theory and they to them, the child just learning slave first slave ships were in 1619, the Civil War started in 1861, the end of slavery, the Jim Crow laws is to them uh, critical race theory, just learning right. learning American history. And like you said, it's, 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 it's the idea that someone has a hotline and you can turn in the teacher. Right. This, this is horrifying. But it, um, it's also accompanying yeah, a big push to privatize public education. So the other thing yeah, you're saying yeah. to parents is go to a Christian school where your child won't be disturbed, you know, right. do homeschooling if you don't like what's being taught in the schools. But I want to say one more thing as, as a child who went home with such ideas from school, what these guys are afraid of is not the children feeling bad. It's the children making the parents feel bad, you know, because- they yeah. suddenly come home and they say, you know, mom, dad, how come how come there are no African-Americans in our neighborhood or Latino? You know, asking troubling questions as, because children are moral actors, right? They're deeply ethical. They get right and wrong. They understand, yeah. you know, intuitively yeah. that slavery is an awful thing. But I think they come home and they ask questions that make the parents uncomfortable. And this is something we've seen, like going back to the New Deal, when the right attacked the schools because they couldn't believe all these young people supported these changes in government because you know, and so it must be communist teachers. But no, it's children learning to be reasoning, critical thinking. Learning American history. Yeah. Well, also, um, something that you said I think is very important. You said the coup is continuing. Yeah. And I have read many articles as well. Um, people sounding the alarm, Mark Elias and others who are talking about their planning for 2022. It's kind of like the first people who bombed the World Trade Center. It didn't go well. They just continued with their planning until in their mind they got it right. And I, and I think people might not not realize it, how this strategy is um, is organized. It's to basically take the power away from the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. throw it to the state legislature, so that it wouldn't even matter how the the people of the state voted. The people in the legislature could determine how the electors went, and if you have a you know a state house that wants to be Trump, then it wouldn't matter. Or, or DeSantis or whomever, it wouldn't matter who the people had voted for. Is that correct? Is that how that you That is say absolutely it? correct. And, and, and it's actually called the Independent State Legislature's Doctrine. And it's something cooked up by Federalist Society <laughs> thinkers and strategists. Um, and they have been uh, promoting it. And it needs to be understood in the context that we were just talking about, too, where you can have, like in a state like mine, you know, um, North Carolina, we have a Democratic governor, um, uh, Roy Cooper, you know, Wisconsin. Has- but they've just disempowered him to exactly, such extent, exactly. So they're taking away power from, and they did that in from the Wisconsin, governor. Michigan, and North Carolina, taking away power from governors who run statewide and presenting it to these these um, uh, um, legislative uh, members who were elected in gerrymandered districts where they don't have to worry about any sane competition. So you know, once you put the, start putting the different pieces together, um, it's it's really quite chilling. Now. I have known, as I'm sure you have known, some very wealthy, Mm -hmm. civilized Mm -hmm. Republicans um, who think that you and I are just, we're like, we just need to calm down. Mm -hmm. It's never going to get that bad. Um, And some of these are very smart, very good people. What are they thinking? Are they thinking that their money would be able to buffer them 
from the horrors that could occur if this continues? Yeah, I am so glad that you talk as much as you do about questions of ethics and who we are as a people and what kind of a country we should have. Because frankly, you know, and you and I have probably both talked to them, these Republicans who will vote for a party that is doing these horrible things to other people because it keeps their taxes low and they like that. And I think it's a point, it, it, we're at a point where we have to think about what a friend of mine calls excessive wealth disorder. <laughs> You know, that, that it's it's just it really crazy, is. the gluttony, and it's like feeding other people into this, this diabolical machine so that, what, you can have another car, you can get a vacation house. It's like, wake up, people, especially when you put climate in this, because this is the party that's stopping action on the climate, and the, the estimates of the uh, climate panels are that we're going to have a minimum of 100 million, 150 million climate refugees if we don't stop what we're doing. Yeah, no, we could, or even 200 million. Like, what is going to happen you know if these so i, I well, totally agree with you that we have to address that i will say i've also met very good democratic donors who are trying at the state level and nationally um to do what they can and write the ship so i think that there's no that's true not every rich person is a greedy bastard yeah. there's no doubt about that um well but but the interesting thing is once again i, I don't know how any of them feel that their money could could buffer them from what will happen if shit really hits the fan. You know, but you know, but I, I yeah, I go on. But I also I, think your friend calling, I'm sorry, go on. That I think there's a gender element to this too that I, and I was asked by this so much when I was um, you know, traveling for the book in the before times, women would ask in the Q&A period or come up to me up to me after say how could these people imagine, you know, that they can live through this or don't they care about their grandchildren or and I think yeah, their kids are Breathing this air. Yeah, but I think it, it, it is an, libertarianism is an overwhelmingly male cause. You know, I'm going to say like 95%. It's like 98% white, 99%. Um, and I think it's people who have always taken for granted that someone would take care of them, right? That they can rely. And so they don't even like factor this stuff in. But I do think that you're right, that ultimately they think that their money will somehow protect them um, or that they can get away from it. So you have someone like Peter Thiel, the hedge fund billionaire, you know, who helped start PayPal, who was part of the Koch network and then became a big Trump supporter and now Steve Bannon supporter, he's gotten citizenship in New Zealand. So they're going to wreck this. Yeah, I saw that. And go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, but ultimately mm-hmm. I do think it's unfathomable. And I think it's, you know, again, it's a deadly dogma. You know, once you start down the road of the way that they think about society and about other people, you start to reach conclusions that are truly alarming <laughs> to most normal well, people. Well, also, you know, one day I took out my calculator because I wanted to see, okay, um, 2% tax on 50, uh, 50 million and more, 1% tax on a billion dollar asset. And I realized for a lot of these people, the increased tax would be little more than lunch money to them. Yeah. It's almost like, why should you care? I know. I know. I know. How how does that compare to increased cancer levels because of carcinogens in the water and the air and the earth? How does that compare to to this deadly militarism that, as JFK said, if we don't end war, war will end us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are you? Yeah, well, are one you thing hopeful? I think is that um, it's really important for folks on our side, <laughs> the human side, to start thinking strategically as well, right? And the right has specialized in driving wedges, uh, you know, into the rest of the population for a long time now over whether it's abortion or affirmative action or these various things that they like to push. But I think it's time for folks on the progressive side to start thinking, how can you break up their coalition, right? So, you know, again, so many... Um, Um, industries are uh, party to at least some of these efforts through the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, you know, and other endeavors. And they think, oh, we're going to drive down our taxes. We won't have to worry about unions. We don't have to worry about regulations. Isn't that great? And they don't see where the train is going, right? (laughs) You know, they're not informed about the final destination. So I think, you know, and I think that climate activists are doing some of this, but, you know, there are whole sectors of the economy that are going to be devastated by climate change. Agriculture with drought and flooding, you know, tourism as we lose our coastlines, insurance, you know, so, so I think there's work for people of means to do in breaking up that part, like the economic part of the coalition. Then I think, you know, with the, um, people of faith, religious uh, people who have gotten involved with this, they have to understand that libertarianism is at odds with 
the best of every major religious tradition in the world, right? <laughs> Which says that we should have compassion, we should care for the sick, we should welcome the stranger, we should do, you know, uh, help the poor get out of poverty. You know, all religious traditions have these elements and they have been, their leaders, entrepreneurial leaders have, you know, taken many of the parishioners for a ride. But I think that there are, you know, um, the evangelical coalition doesn't necessarily have to be so solid. Like if we remember when Trump was separating families at the border and even Jerry Falwell spoke out against it, like for Jerry Falwell to have light between him and Donald Trump, you know, there had to be a rebellion going on, you know, in the pews of the churches. So I think that we need to be a lot more creative in, um, uh, you know, as one one person who deals with the alt-right put it, creating off-ramps, right? We've got to create off-ramps for people from this. Well, you, you, you're not going to, yeah, but what the Democrats need to understand is no point in having an off-ramp if you're not giving them an on-ramp to something better. That's uh, So the, well the Democrats need to realize you're also not giving them the on-ramp to, to something better. Mm -hmm. And also, w when you talk about, you know, um, breaking them up and First of all, there are there are quite a few of the younger evangelicals who are very interested in climate mm -hmm. change issues. Uh, the, there's a younger generation yes. of evangelicals who are absolutely uh, interested in, in climate change and poverty issues. Mm -hmm. But until the Democratic Party and so many of the Democrat elites stop looking their, you know, down their noses at people of faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, no, I, how's that going to work? And also, so, people I, don't have yeah. homophobia at all. <laughs> so that pardon, young, what did you say about homophobia? Christians are rejecting mm -hmm. the homophobia as well, and that's yeah. been an important uh, element for this radicalized Republican Party to get people to the polls. Um, so I think that um, that's important to consider too. And of course, the Cope Network funds groups like the they call it the Alliance Defending Freedom. For you know, it's actually global um, pushing on these religious right issues. But what they mean by freedom is the freedom to discriminate and the freedom to exclude. Uh, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, that's what they call freedom, yeah. freedom, freedom. Yeah. Well, Nancy McLean, I am so grateful to you. I I thought your book was fascinating. Obviously, it's it's seminal. Uh, it describes what has occurred. And I also found it really fascinating talking to you about where we are and where we need to go now. And um, I think that our conversation, it's so interesting to me because in the last quarter or the last third of our conversation, you and I actually... Um, just by virtue of the things we were talking about, we're delineating the the break in the Democratic Party too, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. And I think the conversations uh, between and among people like ourselves are also uh, very, very important. Because if things continue the way they are, um, things might not go so well. Um, I don't want to even give words to it, but things are not looking that good at the moment for the 2022 elections. And... Um, conversations like this will be so important uh, for going forward. And I and, and I love the fact that we, we do agree on the fact that you need to more than give people an off-ramp, you need to give them an on-ramp to something much, much Absolutely. better. Yeah, such a pleasure to talk with you and um, just really impressed at the voice that you're bringing to this and the way that you have been pushing on these issues. So thank you. Oh, well, Thank you. It's an honor to speak to you. I hope it's not the last time. And uh, just know, uh, as as things continue, if you write anything, if you have anything to say, just know I'll always be out there. Very, very interested. My very, very interested with my ears wide open. I think you're one of the most, really, one of the most important voices in America. Oh, so thank, thank you, you so very, much. very much. Honored. <laughs> thank you. Goodbye. God bless you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm sure that you understand now why I think that Nancy McLean is such an important voice. Uh, read Democracy in Chains. Uh, as I said to her, anything she writes, anything she has to say, I know I'm going to be listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube and um, join me for these continuing conversations. Remember, MarianneWilliamson.substack.com. Spread the word. We need to go deep in our understanding, um, deep in our reflection of what has occurred and what is occurring. And out of that, we're going to create political miracles. I just know we are. See you next time.